So we are back in chapter 9 of Matthew's Gospel this morning. Uh, We're going to be starting in verse 27. As you're flipping there, just kind of a recap, uh, because as I've said on a number of occasions, probably enough that you guys are sick and tired of hearing it, probably the most important tool we can use when interpreting Scripture is context. Uh, So the context here so far uh, in Jesus' public ministry here, he and the disciples are in Capernaum during his first year of ministry. We don't have a specific timeline in Matthew's gospel because Matthew does not arrange things by time. He arranges things a little bit more topically than uh, Luke did. And uh, so far in his time in Capernaum, we've had Jesus on the, on the side of the mountain preaching the Sermon on the Mount. And we have seen him heal the leper as he came down off of that the servant of a centurion, the daughter of Jairus, uh, the lame man who was lowered through the roof, Peter's mother, uh, the woman with the 12-year-long hemorrhage, uh, not to mention crossing the Sea of Galilee and casting legion out of the, uh, the individuals there in the land of the uh, Gerasenes and casting the demons into the herd of pigs. So this morning, in verses 27 through 34, We're going to see two more cases of Jesus healing people. Uh, This time it's going to be blindness and a demonic possession that results in a man's inability to speak. Uh, But more importantly, in these two, we're going to see Jesus fulfill prophecy with these two particular passages. So I'm going to ask everybody to stand for the reading of God's Word this morning as we normally do. Matthew chapter 9, starting in verse 27. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. Let's pray. Father, as we go to your word this morning, as we open it and we study it and we We read the contents that have been preserved for us. Father, help us to understand and to see the the principles in this word that apply to our lives. Uh, Father, help us to to not just look at this as a historical story, as an account of something that happened in the far distant past, but as something that is applicable and um, pertinent for the lives that we live today. Uh, Father, we need to, to learn to study your word to be more like Christ. So help us to see him in your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. So, in verse 26, uh, or leading up to verse 26, uh, Jesus had healed the daughter of Jairus, uh, had healed her from the dead, had had raised her from the dead. And uh, we are told that uh, they were astonished And the report of this went through all that district. And then 
Jesus and the disciples left the house. They went back. Uh, probably they left so that the family could rejoice over the restoration of their daughter. I mean, it's not every day that your child dies and somebody comes by and brings her back to life. Uh, so they left the house and, and went back to uh, probably Peter's house. This is where Jesus had taken up residence while he was living in Capernaum as his uh, kind of base camp for ministry. And on their way back between Jairus' house and, and probably Peter's house, a pair of blind men followed. And, you know, they couldn't see Jesus passing by, but they heard the crowd, no doubt, uh, that here, here he comes, the man who just raised somebody from the dead. And so as they, they saw Jesus, or heard Jesus, rather, go by, they started crying out, Have mercy on us, son of David. We've talked before about the boldness of the people who come to Jesus for healing. This takes a lot of courage for people who are stricken like this. You, you had the, the woman with the hemorrhage. Remember, she came to Jesus with the, the, the faith that if she just touched his robe, she would be healed. And Jesus said that it was because of her faith that she was healed. Um, Jairus comes because he knows that Jesus can bring his daughter back. There's, there's a measure of boldness there. These men were desperate. They were brash. They, we don't know anything about these guys except they were blind. That's it. Um, the woman who, who came and pushed her way to the front of the crowd, um, she was, she was kind of stealthy in her boldness. She didn't cry out to Jesus. She didn't make a scene. She didn't make a spectacle. She just, she, she just kind of pushed her way through the crowd to get where she could reach out and to touch him. But these men, and it might be because they were blind, because they had to rely on the other four senses, when they heard what had happened, they were like a pair of Jesus-seeking missiles. They were not going to let him by without calling out for his mercy. Now, as I was studying and setting up for, for this morning, um, it is kind of important to note here what they called Jesus as he went by. Take a look at the end of verse 27 there. They said, have mercy on us, son of David. Now, that's pretty, pretty interesting because up until this point, the, the word that is used, that Matthew uses in the Greek, the word that is most often used to refer to Jesus is the word kurios. And when you read in your Bible, in the New Testament, when you read the word Lord, it's normally capital L, lowercase o-r-d. The Greek word that's translated there is the word kurios. But, but, kurios does not necessarily mean Lord the way we think of the Lord. That word curios is also the word for sir or master, as in uh, a, a young man in a household, you know, you have mister, that's the adult, and you have the master, that's the young, young man in the house, um, or a slave owner or something like that. So it's, it's not necessarily a word that means they recognize Jesus and his deity. It's a word that can just mean sir. Um, so that's... That's one of the names that Jesus is called. Now, in, in, in one case, he's referred to as the Son of God. Y'all remember when that was? 
That was right before he cast Legion out of the demoniac into the herd of swines over in the, across the, the Sea of Galilee. As he's, as he's approaching the demon-possessed men, they cry out, What have you to do with us, Son of God? The only people at this point to call Jesus by that name. And in chapter 9, verse 6, if you flip back there real quick, chapter 9, verse 6, uh, Jesus says, uh, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He calls himself the Son of Man, which, by the way, is the most common name that Jesus uses for himself. Nobody has referred to him as the Son of David up until this point. There is a significance there that we cannot skip over. Now, for us, politically, geographically, Culturally, son of David means what? It means nothing. Who is David to us? Outside of our faith, who is David to us? He's just an ancient king, right? To a Jew, to somebody living in Israel in those days, son of David indicates these men expect he is the Messiah. This is a tie directly to the prophecies of the coming king from the line of David. We can't skip over that. We cannot miss that these men were the first to call Jesus Messiah. Now remember, that doesn't mean that they understood why he came. That doesn't mean that they understood the full implications of what Messiah means. Because for the Jew, the coming king from the line of David was going to do what? He's going to kick Rome out of Israel. He's going to restore the kingdom just like the good old days. And that's not the case. So Jesus goes into the house. These men follow him into the house and he asks them a question. It's a very simple question. Do you believe that I can do this? Now, me and my sarcasm? No, we just figured we'd cry out, have mercy on us. I really don't know if they did believe he could restore their vision. Because have mercy on us could be, especially with that recognition of Jesus from the line of David, could just be a cry out for financial relief. Could just be a cry out for a change of status for somebody who is stricken and considered less than human by most of their peers. These blind men may have just been looking for relief. I don't know. But Jesus says, do you think I can do this? Do you believe that I can do this? Do you believe that I have power over your condition? Of course they believe it. They didn't just say yes. Now here is another one of those places where we have the Greek word kurios. They said to him, yes, Lord. I think in this case, that word kurios ties back to that messianic title, son of David. At the very least, that was Lord as in the imperial Lord, yes, king, Or, more accurately here, 
that it is Lord Deliverer, Lord Messiah. Of course, the Messianic King would be able to deal with their position and their circumstance. And what does Jesus not tell them? When they say, yes, Lord, Jesus doesn't tell them not to call him that. He never tells them that they're wrong. He doesn't tell them you're mistaken. Even if we we look back, verse... um, I would have to do so much uh, more looking here. Uh, but even when we come to those places where Jesus says, don't tell anybody about this. It's in Luke, the story of Jairus' daughter, where Jesus tells the parents, don't tell anybody. And then Matthew tells us that word of this spread where? Throughout the district. And when he gets done healing these men, he tells them, see to it that nobody knows about this. And the word spreads throughout the district. Even though Jesus is trying to contain news of who he is, he does not tell them that they're wrong. So Jesus, after he asks them, after he, he, he grills them, do you really think that I can do this? Do you think that I have the authority over your circumstance, over your condition, over your situation? And they say, yes, Lord. He does something, he touches their eyes. I don't know if he touched them, if he touched them, you know, three stooges poked them in the eye, I don't know. He touched their eyes, and their sight was given to them. Something else we don't know about these people. How long had they been blind? Were these men blind from birth? Were they blinded because of an accident? Was it just part of a genetic condition that developed over time? Was it glaucoma? Was it cataracts? We, we have no idea. What we do know is that Jesus touched their eyes and the first thing that they saw was Jesus. Wouldn't that be cool? Couldn't you imagine? Opening your eyes for the first time and the first face that you see is that of Jesus? That's I wouldn't be able to keep my mouth shut. No wonder they went and told everybody. Now, I, don't, I, I, I really don't know if Matthew intended to do this, if God intended to do this, or maybe if I'm just reading too far into Scripture, but there's a metaphor here for our life before Christ and after. We are all spiritually blind. Do me a favor, stick your... Stick, one finger or a piece of paper or something here in Matthew chapter 9, and flip over to John's Gospel, chapter 3. One of the most familiar sections in all of Scripture, uh, of course, because we have John 3.16, but uh, in, in John chapter 3, there is... Uh, a significant event that deals with this blindness. And if you have ever 
heard me talk or if you've ever heard me preach before for any period of time, you are probably just about sick and tired of hearing me talk about this section of John's Gospel. But I'm going to do it anyways because it's really important. John chapter 3, John starts off by saying there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. A Pharisee, a ruler, this is a prominent man, this is a teacher, this is one of those experts in the law of God, one of those people that Jesus said in, back in Matthew chapter 5, when he started the Sermon on the Mount, he said, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, and I don't think he was being snarky, I don't think he was saying it's not hard because the Pharisees and the, and the scribes, they don't have much righteousness, I think he was saying that they've got righteousness and you need to have righteousness. And oh, by the way, nobody can have that on their own. Nicodemus was not a dumb person. Nicodemus understood there was something different about Jesus. Verse 2, this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs you do unless God is with him. We know, this is the Pharisees, which two parties in Jerusalem led to the crucifixion of Christ? The Pharisees and the Sadducees. And the Pharisees knew that Jesus was a teacher sent from God because there's no way that the stuff that he did could have happened if God was not with him. So Nicodemus is acknowledging that the Pharisees understand who Jesus is. At the very least, he is a prophet anointed by God. And then in verse 3, Jesus answers him. And this is what I wanted you to look at. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, by the way, truly, truly, that's amen, amen. Old English, verily, verily. Truth, truth. Not just truth, but true truth. Or my instructing vernacular, when I'm, when I'm talking to my instructors and they have a, a high pass rate in the classroom, it's like this. This might be on the test. Truly, truly, this might be important. Pay attention. Write this answer down. Truly, truly. I say to you, unless one is born again, he may not see the kingdom. Is that what it says? No, it's not. It says cannot. Now raise your hand if you've ever had to deal with that school teacher. Can I go to the bathroom? I'm sure you can. But the question you want to ask is, may I go to the bathroom? There's a difference between the word can and the word may. The word may is asking for permission. Jesus doesn't use that word here. Jesus doesn't say that unless one is born again, he may not see the kingdom. He uses the word can. He's talking about ability. You cannot see the kingdom unless you're born again. So who can see the kingdom without being born again? Nobody. We are blind. Blind, blind to spiritual things. Unable to see them at all. We were talking about this last Sunday night in our Sunday night study that is 
a little deep. Just just a smidge. Deep. We were talking about this, and, and the question keeps coming up. Why can't people just understand what the Bible says? To us, it just makes sense. To us, we just understand certain things because that's what the Bible says. I, I, my favorite teacher, Dr. Sproul, has said that he's really annoyed with those people who have the bumper sticker that says, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. There's a problem with that bumper sticker. The middle phrase right there. God said it, that settles it, right? Doesn't matter what I believe or not. But when we're on this side of faith, when we are believers, there are things that just make sense to us. Things that are just easy for us to understand. And yet there are people out there in the world, we can present those things that are just easy for us to understand, and they go, oh, maybe for you, but I don't see that. That doesn't make any sense to me. That's not the way things work. Why? Bingo. Because they're blind. God said that he created the world in six days. Why can't they just believe that? Well, because they can't believe that. They cannot. They don't have that ability. Their flesh cannot see, comprehend, understand, whatever word you want to use there. They cannot until they're born again. You will never, ever, 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 ever formulate a good enough argument for a person to say, well, yeah, that must be the case, when it comes to the things of God. You cannot because they can't see it until God does something. Now, if I keep going here, Jesus said, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you've been born again. Nicodemus says, um, how? Because that just doesn't happen. Now, Nicodemus is not an idiot. He knows Jesus is not talking about physical birth. He's not talking about what happens when a child is born here. But Nicodemus cannot understand what Jesus is saying. And Jesus explains it to him. Unless one is born of the water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. This is all up to God. None up to us. We are blind. When the blind men went to Jesus... Who touched their eyes? Jesus did. Who restored their sight? Jesus did. Period. There's an analogy there. There's a similarity there. There's, there's, there's something common here. These men were blind until Jesus touched them. We're spiritually blind until God touches us. So when you're talking to people who don't understand these things, Remember, they don't have the ability until God touches them. Now, if we flip back over to Matthew, I want to finish this section here in Matthew. After he touched their eyes and he said, according to your faith, be it done to you, they believed and, and Jesus did it. Their eyes were opened and Jesus warned them, don't tell anyone. Now, they're standing out in the middle of the street before he touches them, 
Have mercy on us, son of David. They're screaming. They're in a crowd. Now Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Like I said, we don't know how long they've been blind. Now they're not blind. You think anybody will notice? Probably. If nothing else, a blind man in Galilee, in Capernaum of those days, a blind man would go every morning to a specific location, probably near the synagogue or maybe near the marketplace, and beg for money. Because they couldn't work, they had to rely on charity in order to be able to survive. So they would beg. Imagine the next day when everybody comes by. Where's blind dude? This happened to me after Katrina. Prior to Katrina, down on Pass Road in front of Winn-Dixie and Burger King, because he would alternate sides of the road, right? There was a homeless guy. I had no earthly idea what everybody, what his name was. Everybody called him Santa Claus because that's who he looked like. Big white beard, big belly, and he would just sit on the the bench out in front of Winn-Dixie and Burger King, depending on which side of the road he was sitting on. And after Katrina, that was the question. What happened to Santa Claus? Where'd he go? Did he make it through the storm? These, peop- these men were blind. They were probably a fixture on the corner where they were begging. Jesus says, don't tell anybody. Let them figure it out on their own. Now, there's a difference between people figuring out that something has happened and these men going and running their mouths. Jesus was aware of the Jewish understanding of what the Messiah was supposed to be. He knew what the people expected. The people expected the conquering king to rise up and throw off the Roman oppressors. Now, if all of a sudden you've got a couple of guys who used to be blind and now aren't blind, who are telling everybody the Messiah's here, what do you think the Roman authorities are going to do? Yeah. Because they know what the Messiah is supposed to do too. According to what the Jews think. Because the Sadducees were like this with the Romans. They were Roman sympathizers. The tax collectors were primarily Jewish. And they hung out with the Roman soldiers. So Jesus, Jesus was aware of this. If credible word got out that Jesus was the Messiah people would talk and the Romans would have interfered with his ministry. They would have attempted, at the very least, to interfere with the work of redemption. If nothing else, if nothing else, they would have slowed the progress of Jesus' ministry because unless and until they told him to do something contrary to God's word, the sinless Messiah had to render unto Caesar what was Caesar's. So if they told him, you need to get out of here, you need to leave town, he would have left town. 
and the ministry that Jesus had would have been cut short. Now, just like Jairus and his wife, these men could not keep quiet about what Jesus had done. And so they went and told everybody. In verse 20, uh, 32, Matthew tells us as they were going away, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to Jesus. Now, Jesus may well have walked to the door of the house with these guys. I don't know. Uh, what happened to, with the blind men happened in the house. What happened with the demon-possessed man happened out on the street. So much for keeping it quiet. The manifestation of this demon oppression was the man's inability to speak. He was mute until the demon was cast out. Uh, similar to the blind men, he regained an ability that he should have had when Jesus exercised his power. So the, the demon is cast out in public where people can see, because we're told there in verse uh, 33, the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. And they're right. Jesus is doing stuff that nobody had seen before, but it's not stuff that was unprecedented. Later on... Um, couple of chapters down the road, we run into John's disciples again. Let me, let me read this to you. In chapter 11, when Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and to preach in their cities. When John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. And the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Take a look at Isaiah chapter 35. One more page flip. Isaiah chapter 35. Verses 5 and 6. Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoicing with joy. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it. The majesty of Carmel and Sharon. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make, the firm, make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, Be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance. With the recompense of God, He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap up like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. For waters break forth in the wilderness, and streams in the desert. The burning sand shall become a pool, the thirsty ground springs of water. In the haunt of jackals where they lie down, the grass shall become reeds and rushes. Never before has healing and deliverance from demonic possession happened like this in Israel. But it wasn't unprecedented. 
because the prophet Isaiah said it was going to happen. And Jesus is doing it. But now, if, if God had inspired a soundtrack to accompany the Bible, there are a couple of places where you would have had that very ominous piano tone, dun-dun-dun, right? You know what I'm talking about? Like anytime you're watching a, a suspense or even on the old radio shows, anytime something big was going to happen, you dun-dun-dun. We have one in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more cunning than all the beasts of the field. You can hear it in the dun-dun-dun, right? We have it right here in verse 34. We have another one of those. But the Pharisees said, He cast out demons by the prince of demons. In other words, the Pharisees that were present there we're making the statement that the only reason Jesus was able to do what he was doing was because he was acting in the power and authority of Satan. This statement pops up again later when Jesus warns about the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin, blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, or ascribing the work of the Spirit to Satan. Here he does not warn them. Here we don't have that warning. However, this is where there is a change in tone in Jesus' ministry at this point right now, where the opposition is going to start coming against him. Now, I told you there's a Metaphor between us and the blind man. We're all blind until we're touched by Christ and then we're able to see. Well, there's another one that we can pull out of the the person who's mute. Because once Jesus healed him, he was able to what? He was able to speak. What are we commanded to do by Christ at the end of His public ministry? At the end of His ministry here on earth, as He is preparing to ascend into heaven, at the end of this book, Matthew chapter 28, there you go. We are commanded to make disciples. We're commanded to go and to tell people. He says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. What do witnesses do? Yeah, they testify, right? That's a witness testifies at a trial. We're supposed to be his witnesses. We're supposed to go and speak. We, who were once blind, but now can see, are those who were once mute, who need to go and talk. The application of this, the, the, the principle here that I want you to see, is we don't just have a responsibility now to read God's Word and to see what it says, to see the kingdom of God. We have a responsibility to go and to tell people about the kingdom of God. If you can see it, 
And think about the most wonderful thing you have ever seen. All right, I'll give you, I'll give you a, a, a parallel from uh, my life uh, because I know the people at work are about tired of hearing me talk about it, right? In 2011, prior to my retirement, Steph and I went on what was supposed to be a five-day cruise. Uh, Hurricane or Tropical Inconvenience Lee kept it down to a four-day cruise. We, we left Automobile and we sailed down to Cozumel, Mexico. And I have seen water before in my life. Uh, and, and to be honest, from the top of the cruise ship as we were cruising through the Gulf of Mexico, it was meh. The horizon was okay, but it was kind of gray, kind of overcast. Eh. We pulled into Cozumel that morning, and from the, the 11th deck, which is a long ways up for a guy that's afraid of heights, I looked down off the boat into the water, and you can see all the way to the bottom. And it was at least 100 feet down. And I was, I was up. It was like the water wasn't there. There's was just a blue tinted piece of glass that the, the ship was parked on. It was unbelievable. It was the most gorgeous sight I have seen in God's creation. When I got back from that cruise, made it back to work, I couldn't shut up about it. It was amazing. It was gorgeous. It was unbelievable. When you see something that strikes you at your very core, something that is that remarkable, you ought to tell people about it. You want to tell people about it. You can't shut up about it. Think about the best meal you've ever had. Do you ever tell people about the restaurant where you got it? Yeah. Now think about your relationship with Christ. That ought to be the best thing you've ever experienced. That ought to be the most beautiful, the most stunning, the most impactful thing that has ever occurred in your life. Don't you want to go tell people about it? You should be, or you should desire to be, that person that just won't shut up about the things that God's done in his life, or her life. So that's my challenge. As we get ready to go out this morning, that's my challenge to you. Take some time as we pray to think about what God's done for you. And if that's worthy of you telling other people about it.